I don't know about you, but one of the kinds of books that I enjoy reading are biographies. Uh, when we were going to have our, our first child, when we found out that we were pregnant, uh, we ended up landing on the name Nora, of course, if she was going to be, uh, well, we didn't know at that time what it was going to be until the day she was born, but uh, we figured, okay, we're going to settle on Nora, but if she was going to be a boy, her name was going to be Jackson. We have a Jackson right here. But it wasn't after this Jackson. In fact, we didn't know this Jackson yet. Um, it was after, in part, at least for me, Stonewall Jackson, the great Civil War general. And so I bought this massive biography on, on uh, Stonewall Jackson. It's something like 700, it's over 700 pages long. And I began to read it on my breaks at work and at lunch and all that kind of stuff. And I've yet to finish it. Uh, it's very long. And as soon as I found out the day she was born, she was going to be a girl. Well, no need to read the biography anymore. She wasn't going to be named after the guy. But it was fascinating to read about this man and the battles that he had been involved in. How he had lost his wife and first child when she was in childbirth. She passed away as well as the child. He also set up a Sunday school class for the children of slaves. He was really an incredible man. But I wish that as I was reading that biography, there was a way to kind of call Stonewall and just say, when you were going through this situation, what were you thinking about, right? When you were at the battle of first bull run, what was going through your mind? Or when your child and your wife died in that terrible scene, what was going on in your heart and mind? Or what prompted you to start a class for the children of slaves? And certainly there are letters and various ways of finding out some of the answers of these kinds of questions. But how interesting would it have been to just be able to, hey, Stonewall, I've just read about you doing this. Let let me know. What what were you thinking? How were you feeling in these big moments of your lives? And within the first half of the book of Daniel, it does serve more as a biography, doesn't it? It gives us these real high peaks of Daniel's life. It gives us the high peaks of even Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and their lives and the kinds of things that they went through together or apart. And so the first half of Daniel serves as that kind of biography, giving us this really big picture of Daniel's life. But the last half of Daniel is kind of like having Daniel next to us. It's kind of like being able to tap him on the shoulder and say, okay, so in this year or around this time, what was going on? What kinds of things were you thinking about? And so in Daniel chapter 7 and Daniel chapter 8, we've seen these visions. In Daniel chapter 9 here, we're going to see a prayer. But basically, it's kind of like Daniel saying, oh yeah, during this year of King Belshazzar, I had this vision. And then a couple of years later, when this was going on uh, during, this, during his reign, I had another vision, and it made me sick, and I was in bed for a few days, and on and on. Or like Daniel chapter 9 this morning, it's as though Daniel tells us, oh yeah, during this year of Darius, I was reading Jeremiah, I found out about the captivity of Babylon, that it was going to come to a close, and so I prayed a prayer of confession to our Lord against him. And so these chapters, although difficult to understand at times, they, they really provide us with an inside scoop. We have the biography in the first half, but then Daniel 7, 8, 9, and so forth give us this inside scoop, as it were. They take Daniel's biography and they color it up a little bit for us. And this morning, we come to Daniel's confession of sin, which really helps to fill in the fact that we know Daniel is a man of prayer. And it gives us a glimpse of what that looks like. This is one of the longest prayers that we have recorded in the Bible. And it's a prayer concerning the sin of not only the people of God, 
but of also Daniel. Biographies tell you a lot about a person, right? Reading somebody's memoirs, reading somebody's autobiography tell you a lot about a person. But there's something else if you're able to experience it that will give you a whole new perspective on somebody. And that's when you hear them pray, right? You can read about somebody and how great they were. You can read somebody like Stonewall, but could you imagine hearing him pray? Could you imagine hearing him pray before a battle? Could you imagine hearing him pray about the Sunday school that he started for those children? To hear somebody pray really gives you a new perspective on that person. So this morning, we get an intense, uh, or a glimpse of the intense spiritual life of Daniel by getting a glimpse into his prayer life. And I want to note a few important points about prayer from this text this morning. And the first point that I want you to notice, and it's on the back of your bulletin as well, that the Word of God and prayer are united. The word of God and prayer are united. Look with me at verse 1. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent of Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that, according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely, 70 years. Now again, this is certainly one of the things that we know about Daniel, that he is a man of prayer. We've touched on this throughout the book, but we've never really jumped into it. You remember back in Daniel chapter 2, when all of that was swirling about uh, the king Nebuchadnezzar, and he had uh, set up the statue, and Daniel had been revealed the vision and so forth. He goes to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and what's he tell them? He says, pray. He says, beseech God, ask God for mercy in this situation so that Nebuchadnezzar doesn't kill me when uh, he finds out the interpretation of the dream. And then you remember in Daniel chapter 6, right before he goes into the lion's den, why does he end up in the lion's den? Because he refuses not to pray, right? So he's praying three times a day. His face is toward Jerusalem. And so this is something that we've seen a couple of times within the book of Daniel, that he is a man of prayer. And so here in Daniel 9, we get this glimpse into his prayer life as it's been hinted at all along. And so it's good for us, isn't it? Because of all of the things that you and I probably struggle with, that we have the same exact struggle in common, one of the big ones in regard to spiritual disciplines is prayer, isn't it? Fully confess. The biggest struggle in my own life in spiritual disciplines is prayer. Not just praying before a meal, not maybe praying with the kids before bed, but to actually get alone with God and pray. Pray. I love a couple quotations from Robert Murray McShane. He died at a young age of 29. He was so wise. He died a couple hundred years ago. But he said the following. If you want to humble a man, ask him about his prayer life. Is that true? If you want to humble a man, ask him about his prayer life. I think for most of us, for somebody to ask us about our prayer life, for some to say, hey, how, how are you doing in your time with the Lord? Are you spending time alone with God to pray? We kind of stumble around. Well, it's, I'm, I'm able to pray here and there, right? We kind of fill it in somehow to make it not seem so bad when in reality we haven't really prayed. McShane also said this, A man is what he is on his knees before God and nothing more. A man is what he is on his knees before God and nothing more. If you want to know where you are spiritually, if you want a good diagnostic test on your life, take stock of your prayer life. Do you pray? Again, not just before meals or bedtimes, but do you actually pray? Do you take time to to kneel? Do you take time to sit in a chair and pray and bend the ear of your sovereign God? 
I think for most of us, the, the, again, we're, we're all kind of in the same boat where we wake up, our feet hit the floor in the morning, we get the kids up or we get ourselves ready for work, we rush about our day, we get supper, we roll around on the carpet with the kids for a little while, the kids go to bed, we sit on the couch and we're exhausted, right? And if we closed our eyes to pray as we're sitting there on the couch, we'd probably wake up in the same position the next morning, wouldn't we? For most of us, in order to have a time to pray, it's going to take strategy. It's going to take scheduling in order to get alone with God. It's going to take waking up early before the kids or before the day gets rushed on and before we get too tired. Let me remind you who we're reading about. We are reading about Daniel. He is one of the three prime ministers of Babylon, one of the most important and one of certainly the most busy men in the entire empire. Yet here he is spending chunks of time in prayer. And so the bottom line is if you're too busy to pray, you're too busy. But as we look into this chapter here, the big thing that I want you to grab onto is the unity between the word of God and prayer. The word of God and prayer are united together. They go together. Again, look at verse 2. I want you to see this clearly. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books. In other words, he's reading his Bible. He perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So what happens within this chapter to begin with, within these first few verses, is that God speaks God speaks to Daniel through his word. He's reading Jeremiah. So Daniel's reading his Bible. Not only does he make the time to pray each day, but he's taking time to read the word. He's scouring God's word for truth, specifically by looking at Jeremiah. And so as he's going through Jeremiah, he reads that the time of the exile in the Babylon, in Babylon was going to come to a close. And they had already been there for about 70 years. So Daniel's reading this good news from Jeremiah And it catapults him into prayer. So Daniel reads this truth from God's word. The matter is settled for Daniel. This is what God said. And so this is what is going to happen. It was time to anticipate the end of the exile. I may have told you this before, but I had a professor in Bible college that used to bring up how sometimes you'll hear people say kind of a threefold statement. God said it. I believe it. That settles it. Right? God said it. I believe it. That settles it. And the point that he would make from that is that it ultimately doesn't matter whether you believe it or not. God said it. That settles it, right? So that middle part can kind of be taken out. It can be placed as kind of irrelevant. God said it. That settles it regardless of whether you believe it or not. And as Daniel is reading this passage in Jeremiah, specifically chapter 25, verse 12, he sees that God has spoken. The matter is settled. The end of the captivity would be upon them. And I love the response of Daniel. That this launches him into prayer. Because I know for me, in my own life, when I, when I see Daniel's response to God's word, it helps correct my thinking because so often when I know something is going to happen because God promises it in his word, I, I'll just slack off on the prayer end of that. God already said it's going to happen, so I'm just going to back away from this thing, and he's going to end up making that happen, right? Maybe an example of that could be even in the Lord's Prayer. You know, the Lord's instructing his disciples to pray and us to pray, and he says, um, you know, your kingdom come, your will be done. I mean, frankly, I don't often pray that God's kingdom would come. He's already said it's going to come, so I just trust in the fact, but he has told us to pray for that. 
And so I love the fact that even though Daniel has the sovereign word of the Lord, it still catapults him into prayer. God's word says it, that settles it, but it pushes him to pray. So as Daniel reads the promises of the Lord that the end of the exile is coming, shoots him into prayer. So he doesn't say, well, good, God is going to bring us back into the land. Let's ride it out till then. God's sovereign. No need to pray about it. No. He prays. Look at verse 3 and his response. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him in prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I'll just make a quick note about the fasting and sackcloth and ashes. You may wonder, why don't we do that anymore? Jesus actually says in the Sermon on the Mount that when you fast, not to do that. He says to clean yourself up. It's not about making a show. When Daniel's not making a show here, this is just what they would have done in these days. But for us now, the Lord has done away with fasting, or excuse me, the sackcloth and ashes aspect. But notice carefully the first word in verse 3. He says, then... God spoke first through his word, then I turned my face to the Lord. It's like C.H. Spurgeon explained prayer to be. He, he said prayer is like a homing pigeon. I did a little bit of research on these homing pigeons yesterday. I was watching videos. It was really fascinating how these birds worked and how they would uh, carry messages and how they would train them to do it. But Spurgeon said that prayer is kind of like a homing pigeon. Prayer begins in the heart of God. It gets sent out and it lands on your heart and then you send the message back to him. The word of the Lord comes to Daniel like a homing pigeon. It rests upon Daniel's heart and he cannot help but respond in prayer to the word that the Lord has given to him. And so God speaks through his word and we speak back to him in prayer. And so I want to get very practical about this. I want to show you what this could possibly look like, something that you could take home and even uh, use today or tomorrow. But turn over to uh, Psalm 23 with me. I don't usually do something like this, but um, I just want to pull out a Daniel for just a few minutes and show you what this could look like. God's Word speaking to you and you speaking back. Famous passage. Psalm 23, verse 1 says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Okay? So you read that verse, and you respond back to God. You read His Word, and then you pray back to Him. So the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And you can use something even as simple as the acronym CATS. Right? Oftentimes when I'm praying, I'll I'll think through my mind CATS. C for confession. A for adoration. T for thanksgiving, S for supplication. Okay? So if you apply something like that to Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Well, I'm going to begin with confession because I want my heart to be pure as I'm coming to the Lord. And so I'll begin with confession and I'll say, Lord, I, I, I confess that so often I worry that I'm going to lack what I need. You, you, you say that I shall not want, but I confess that oftentimes I worry about the fact that I feel like I'm going to need stuff. Or I continue to confess and I say, Lord, I confess that so often I trust in myself to guide instead of trusting you to be my shepherd. Right? Or then you move on to adoration and you've, you've confessed to the Lord as you've re- read his word and you say, okay, Lord, I, I adore you for being a wonderful chief shepherd. Or I sense your guiding spirit as I read your word and I adore you for these things. 
Move on to thanksgiving. You say, Lord, I, I thank you for the guidance in my life. You are the shepherd, so you are leading me as one of your sheep. And so I thank you for your guidance in my life. I thank you, Lord, for your provision for me. You tell me that I shall not want, and you provide for me. And supplication, Lord, I would ask that you would continue to shepherd me, to shepherd my wife, shepherd my kids, shepherd our church family. You are the, the good shepherd, and so please guide us in this way. And Lord, continue to provide for us. And so I confess... I adore him, I thank him, and then I ask requests. I have these supplications that I want to bring to the Lord. And this can get very, very practical, where again, you read a first verse like that. The Lord is my shepherd. Okay, where else does your mind go? Well, my mind goes to John chapter 10. He is the good shepherd. And what does the good shepherd do? He gives his life for the sheep. Lord, thank you for being the good shepherd who gives his life for the sheep. And then you can move on to 1 Peter chapter 5 where he says that he is the chief shepherd and that he's going to return. And you pray and thank him for being that chief shepherd. But you also ask him, Lord, please return. We look forward to your coming. And so it's just a very practical way to look into God's word, to let Psalm 23 verse 1 to speak, and then you respond. And then you go to the second verse. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. Lord, thank you for doing this for me. You are constantly in my life and leading me by your spirit. So that's at least a very practical thing that you can do to to go to God's word. Let God's word speak to you. And then you respond to him in prayer. Because again, if you're anything like me, it's easy to get down on your knees. And then after about five, ten minutes, feel like an eternity. And you're like, man, I really have no direction within my prayer. But at least God's word, if you're praying through God's word, it gives you that direction. And you can have that conversation with the Lord. So that's at least a practical illustration of how that can look. But turn back to Daniel again. Daniel chapter 9. It's this reading of God's word that pushes Daniel into prayer. But I want you to notice next the participants that we need to understand, namely who we are and who God is. Who we are and who God is. One author has said prayer is an expression of what we know of God and ourselves. It's an expression of what we know of God and what we know of ourselves. Again, this is why it's important to be praying through God's word because it shows us who God is and it shows us who we are. This is something that Daniel is very clear on within the prayer. You cannot escape that, the fact that he understands who God is, but he understands who he is and who the people of God are in relation to him. Look quickly at the verses here. You notice in verse 5, Daniel uses pronouns like we and us. He is confessing not only his own sins, but the sins of his people. And he says in verse 5, We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. Verse 6, We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. Verse 7, speaks of the treachery committed against God. The shame that the people have deserved is in verse 8. Rebellion in verse 9. Disobedience in verse 10. Transgressions in verse 11. And just on and on concerning their own wickedness as God's people. And Daniel is presenting all of this to the Lord. So clearly, this is a prayer of confession in which Daniel acknowledges his own sinfulness and the sinfulness of his people. So Daniel isn't sitting back. As we've seen Daniel throughout this book, he's been like a stalwart, hasn't he? He's been a godly man, holy from his childhood, right? But yet here he is, including himself. I am a sinner. I have wronged God, and my people have wronged God. 
There's no egregious sin mentioned of Daniel in the entire book, yet he still acknowledges himself to be a sinner. He considers his people to be sinners. But on the other side, he also understands who God is. Notice verse 4. Daniel refers to the Lord as great and awesome. He speaks of the covenant nature of God, covenant-keeping nature of God, no less than seven times. His steadfast love for His people. In verse 7, He speaks of the Lord's righteousness. In verse 9, the Lord's mercy and forgiveness. Verses 14 and 16, He brings up the Lord's righteousness again. He references the Lord's holy hill of Jerusalem, again reflecting the Lord's own holiness. In verse 18, He mentions the Lord's mercy and righteousness again. So Daniel, in this confession for himself and his people, he understands who he is as a sinner, yet understands God as the merciful, covenant-keeping, forgiving, and righteous God. And so this is such a key part to prayer, to understand who you are, but to understand who God is. This is, again, why it's so important to be in God's Word. And this is something that we discussed a little bit in Sunday school this morning to understand ourselves as those who are unworthy to come before God, and that is His righteousness alone that we stand in, but then also recognizing as we read God's Word who He is. So the prayer, or the Word of God and prayer are united. The participants of prayer, God and us, are understood. And the last point I want you to see is the response of God to prayer is undeniable. Look at verse 20. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you. For you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. So here Daniel is. He's just confessed his sin. He's confessed his people's sins. He's an old man, and he's presenting this plea before the Lord. And angel Gabriel comes to him. He made swift flight the text says, in order to communicate to Daniel, to give him understanding and insight. And there is a little bit of debate on on the name Gabriel. Is it specifically referring to a specific angel? Or is it referring to angel and angel in general? Is is Gabriel a a general word for a kind of angel? I don't know. I tend to definitely lean toward that. It is a specific angel, this one who also communicated with, with Joseph and Mary with the coming of Christ. But did you notice the encouragement that Gabriel brings with him? Daniel has cried out. We're we're sinners. He's not feigning here. He's acknowledging, oh God, I'm a sinner. My people are sinners. And Gabriel comes. And what does Gabriel tell him in verse 23? You are greatly loved. You are greatly loved, Daniel. And don't you kind of wish, after you get done confessing your sin to the Lord, Maybe there would be an angel show up and say, you are a sinner, but you are greatly loved. How would it look? How wild would it be if God even sent it Gabriel down to Windsor Christian Fellowship following the service and he stood at the back door and he shook all your hands as you left and said, you are greatly loved. You are greatly loved. 
you are greatly loved. You can imagine how for Daniel, with all of the battles that he had fought during his life, and at this point in Darius' reign, he has yet to even go into the lion's den at this point. And all he has done within this passage is admit the great sinfulness of himself and his people. And God doesn't turn around and point the finger at Daniel and say, yeah, you're right. You are nothing but a sinner. He comes down and says, you are greatly loved. But Christian, let me encourage you that although there are times where you feel like a class A sinner, and you feel like you're just forever, never-ending, confessing sin after sin, the truth is, if you belong to Christ, if you are in Christ, you are greatly loved. And the good news is that you don't need an angel to come and confirm God's love for you. Why would you need an angel to come from heaven to confirm God's love for you when God has already sent Jesus from heaven that confirms His love for you? For God so loved the world that He did what? He sent His only Son. The expression of God's love for a rotten sinner like me and you is in the person of Jesus. But sometimes I lose confidence after a week of failing and struggling and falling. How could God love me? Oh yeah, the good news, the gospel. God sent His Son to die for me. Romans chapter 5 verse 8. But God shows His love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Or 1 John 4 verse 10. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. How do you know God loves you, Christian? It's not going to be the whisper of an angel. It's in the person of Jesus Christ being sent from God. And if you don't know the truth of that, And if that does not resonate with your soul, and if that does not thrill you, I would ask you to consider Christ, to think upon Him as the one who was obedient to the Father and submitted Himself to the Father's plan and came to this earth and lived perfectly, never having to confess sin, and now stands at the right hand of the Father and is the one to whom we bring our sin. And He, as our high priest, intercedes on our behalf, pleading His own blood for our case. In the last part of Daniel chapter 9, verses uh, 24 to the end, you truly have, and I say this without any hesitation, these verses that close Daniel 9 are the most difficult verses in the Bible to interpret. Uh, There are no other verses in the Bible, in my estimation, that are more difficult to understand than these verses. And it is not for that reason that we're not going to look heavily into them. But because we have already determined that we're going to highlight the main points of the text, we're not going to spend time in the minutia. But if you do have questions about these verses, I'd be happy to talk to you about them afterwards. But suffice it to say that although they are difficult verses to understand, there is very good news contained within them. So yes, they are hard. And if you read through them, depending with what kind of lenses you come to God's word with, you may read them in a couple of different ways. None are necessarily heretical, but there are definitely different opinions on those verses. But it closes with good news. Look at verse 24. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin... And to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. So those things 
are certainly good news. That is going to put an end to transgressions. He's going to atone for iniquity. And most commentators would agree that these things are fulfilled in what Jesus would come and do. And he would come and do these things, wouldn't he? He would come and put an end to transgressions. And he would, he would uh, atone for iniquity. And so, yes, the end of the Babylonian captivity would come to an end, and that would be a fantastic reality for the people of God. But as we saw in Daniel 8, the people would again fall into their transgressions. But again, there is good news for Daniel here in verse 24, because in the distance, in some shadowy way, in some vision, or however God gave these words to him, or maybe it was just these words through Gabriel, he gives these words to him. And so in some shadowy way, Daniel understands that something's going to happen in the future. And it's going to be to put away transgressions. It's going to be to atone for sin and bring everlasting life. And the one who would do this would be Jesus. So isn't it wonderful that even the most difficult verses in the Bible point to Christ? So here is Daniel. He has read God's word. He has confessed his sin and his people's sins. Gabriel comes to him and assures of him God's love and then tells him, although in shadow form, without the clarity that you and I have now, looking back to those events that Christ accomplished, he saw in some shadowy way what Jesus was going to come and do to finish transgressions, put an end to sin, atone for sin, and to give everlasting life. Daniel is assured of the love of God. And assured that God was going to put away wickedness and to give eternal life. And this morning, Christian, my hope for you is that you have the same assurances of Daniel after looking at this passage. That this chapter of Daniel gives us so much truth. It shows us how to pray and how to respond to God's word. It shows us who we are and it shows us who God is. It shows us God answering prayer. And it even gives us a clear view of what the Messiah would come and do. And although Daniel looked forward to the things that the Messiah would do, we look back at what he has done, and we see with even greater clarity, more than Daniel could have ever hoped to see with, that God loves us, that he sent his son for us, and the result is eternal life with him. Let's pray together.